0: What if I could share with you the worst day of my professional life without fear of judgment or ridicule and without loss of respect? Could we learn together from my experience?
1: Case Matters, a podcast series created for Australian dental practitioners, intends to do just that to create a shared experience where all points of view are explored to help empower safer practice. Hello, my name's Dr. Annalene Weston, dental legal consultant at Dental Protection. And I'm going to guide you through today's case entitled, I knew it could happen, I just didn't think it could happen to me. The conversation of consent is one of the most important conversations any clinician has with a patient. In this conversation, we set out for the patient the likely consequences of the course of treatment we're discussing, and also what is likely to happen if they don't proceed. We present alternatives, costs, risks, warnings and benefits of the options under consideration. And armed with this information, the patient moves forwards and makes a decision about the best options for them. Sometimes people make decisions we don't agree with and sometimes for reasons we do not fully understand. But it's the right of every patient to accept or decline care as they choose once they've been fully informed of the consequences of their decision. It's important to note that the obligation to present all the information to the patient in a meaningful way does not fall away if the patient has, for example, financial constraints. It is also important to know that the conversation of consent is identified as an underlying cause of patient dissatisfaction and even findings of negligence in many cases that dental protections see. That tells us this is an area that many clinicians may be approaching inconsistently or simply missing the mark. In this case, Miss Summer presented to Dr Green with a painful 1-6. Regretfully, things did not go to plan. Many parties became involved after the event and everyone had an opinion. But which view was correct? All of them or just some of them? And is there such a thing as the right point of view in this at all? Or could it perhaps be that everyone's a little bit right and a little bit wrong? We'll hear from the people involved and also look at the final outcome to see what lessons can be learned. I'll hand over to Dr. Green to set things out.
0: Miss Summer is an irregular attender. She is fit and well, with no relevant medical history. She often declines x rays when she does attend, but I would say she is well motivated to keep her teeth. I was surprised to see her booked in for an emergency today.
2: Thank you, Dr. Green. Miss Summer, it's our understanding you have toothache. Toothache is an understatement. I've never felt anything like this before, ever. It is appalling. I can't eat or sleep or think. The tooth got a bit of a chip a few months ago, but I couldn't afford to come in and get it fixed. I don't have a big extras cover with my health fund and COVID has really impacted on my shifts, so money has been tight. It's not that my teeth aren't important to me, because they really are, but they're not as important as my rent and my car repayments. I'm dreading what he's going to say. Dr. Green called Miss Summer through for an assessment and he'll share
1: his findings with us.
0: Miss Summer presented with a history of a chipped tooth that with time became a niggle and eventually turned into a pounding toothache. She was pale and drawn and obviously in pain. Examination revealed a large cavity in tooth number 16 around an old composite filling. With permission, I took a PA and this revealed that the caries was into the pulp. While I would try to save every tooth I could, my biggest concern was whether the tooth would still be restorable once I removed all of the filling and undertook a root canal treatment. So I talked through my findings and broadly outlined three options. Do nothing, which I did not recommend. Extirpate the tooth, with the view to proceed to a root canal treatment, explaining my concerns about the prognosis of this. Or extract the tooth perhaps replacing it at a later date. Although, of course, replacement is not necessarily required.
1: What did Miss Summer
2: think about these options? I can't think. I'm in so much pain. He has said a lot of things, and I think I'll have to go for the extraction, because it's the cheapest. And it sounds like it's a surefire way to leave here without any pain. I don't like the idea of losing a tooth, but it's a back tooth, so I don't think anyone would notice. I can always look to save up for one of those replacements later if it bothers me. How much can I miss one tooth, really?
0: When Miss Summer elected for the extraction, which I did feel was her best option here, I talked to her through the risks and warnings of the treatment to ensure I had informed consent. I told her the tooth may break, that if this happened, the root may be left behind or that might get pushed into the sinus, and that this would incur additional costs for specialist treatment. I also outline post-operative pain, bleeding, swelling, and the risk of an OAC.
2: Stop talking and numb me up. I don't mean to be rude, but I really hope he gets on with it. My head is pounding, and look, I'm not looking forward to it. I haven't had a tooth out before, and it sounds awful, but the waiting really isn't helping. Satisfied that he had consent to
1: proceed, Dr Green administered two cartridges of Articane to the 1-6, Buckley and Pallasley in preparation to take the tooth out. Do you think this has happened very quickly? Based on the information available, do you agree with Dr Green's assessment? Would you have suggested anything different for Miss Summer, or approached anything differently in this appointment? And what do you think is going to happen next? Regretfully, and perhaps as some of you may have anticipated, the extraction was not straightforward at all.
0: This is terrible. The tooth is so brittle that despite luxation, it decoronated as soon as I put the forceps on. I can't get any purchase now. It's, it's chipping away in slithers. Best thing to do now is divide the roots and take each one out in turn. I best let her know.
2: This is terrible. It doesn't hurt, but it sounds awful. The big bang when the tooth broke scared me half to death. He says he's going to use a special drill to divide the tooth up into small sections that are easier to get out. Sounds fine to me, as long as he gets it done.
0: Okay, mesial root. The curve on that wasn't obvious on the x-ray, but never mind. Distal. Okay, just palatal to go. Oh no! Have you
1: ever pushed a root into a sinus? When it does occur, which it does, the strangest thing happens to time, as it seems to slow like you're moving through treacle. You almost seem to see the root disappear before it does, like an echo of a memory or deja vu, but you're powerless to stop it. You hear the beat of your own heart as the blood rushes to your head. It is the sound of adrenaline, the sound of stress, the sound of, what on earth am I going to do now? Dr Green gathered himself and told Miss Summer what had occurred. He advised her this was a risk that they had discussed and that he would refer her to a specialist surgeon to get the route assessed and likely removed. Hemostasis was achieved and Dr Green escorted Miss Summer to reception where she sat and waited to be called forwards by the receptionist. Dr Green completed a referral but did not hand this to Ms Summer himself largely because he was quite shaken and wanted to reflect on the procedure before seeing the next patient. And so he relied instead on his receptionist to pass the referral to Ms Summer. Unbeknownst to him, the charges for an emergency assessment, PA, complex extraction and a referral had been put through on the computer by his dental assistant who'd added the codes while adding the batch tracking. Consequently, these charges were passed to Miss Summer and the health insurance gap she paid was quite large. And so we reach the crossroad moment of any matter. Will the patient complain or will the patient not complain? I'm going to ask my colleague Simon Parsons, the dental legal consultant on this matter, to talk through some of Dr Green's actions that may influence the patient's decision on whether or not to complain when something's gone wrong during their care.
3: As observers in this matter... We know that Dr. Green has talked through the risks and warnings associated with the extraction of this tooth, and that included possible root fracture, the displacement of the root into a sinus, and the possible creation of what we call an oroantral communication. Regretfully, very few people have perfect recall of conversations, and this recall can be impacted on or impaired by distraction. Many of us would agree that Miss Summer would have been greatly distracted by the pain she was in. Further, it is possible that Dr. Green weighted the options in accordance with what he believed to be the best option, and as such, may not have presented the options to Miss Summer in a balanced manner so that she could assess what was truly best for her. While one could argue that the tooth was likely unrestorable, so talking through root canal treatment would give Miss Summer an excess of information that she did not need. We often see situations arise where a patient will jump to an extraction, not considering a temporary dressing to relieve their pain and buy them some time to make a considered decision, free from pain and the distractions of the dental surgery. Next, while the information was provided to Miss Summer, we are not sure whether she understood the relevance of a root in the sinus and the impact it could have on her, including additional costs and the need for further treatment. Many individuals find it difficult to truly internalize the issue of, what does this mean for me? And this is one of the reasons why it is critically important that we place appropriate emphasis on what can go wrong, as well as what can go right. A good example of this would be in a discussion regarding the risk of nerve injury. Because telling a patient their nerve could be injured is very different from explaining what a nerve injury actually means in terms of paresthesia and or the pain that can last forever and also be unresponsive to analgesics. Explaining that it can affect your ability to eat, to talk, to kiss, to shave or apply lipstick would be very helpful. You can see that some of these descriptors would make it easier for a patient to meaningfully understand what a nerve injury means, rather than just a warning of a nerve injury. And finally, while the treatment was legitimately provided, I think we would all question the sense of charging full charges for incomplete treatment, where something has gone wrong, necessitating the need for specialist care, which will invariably incur additional costs and also of charging for the referral in this situation. Charging a fee for removal of most of the tooth, or a referral, can erode any goodwill or understanding a patient may have about the situation.
1: Thank you, Simon. Miss Summer went home and scheduled an appointment with the specialist for removal of the root in the sinus. She was shocked to be told the price of the assessment and even more shocked when she was told the root removal and repair would take place under general anaesthetic and the associated costs this would incur. Miss Summer mulled over this for a day or two and attended the assessment with the surgeon. They advised her they'd contact her referring GDP to bring him up to speed and Miss Summer awaited contact from Dr Green, quite sure he would touch base with her. He did not. The day of the general anaesthetic arrived and Miss Summer attended the hospital with trepidation. The procedure was successful and uneventful. But Miss Summer still required some time off work, both for the postoperative pain and the considerable facial bruising that the surgeon had predicted. Miss Summer did not want to be seen in public looking like this. Dr. Green still did not call and the hospital invoices started to arrive for her treatment, the day surgery fees and the anaesthetist. The out-of-pocket costs to Miss Summer were now in the thousands and this does not include the unpaid leave she had to take from work while she recovered. Miss Summer's sister encouraged her to go to a lawyer sure that this would meet the standard of negligence. As a registered paramedic, Miss Summer's partner understood the regulatory framework and encouraged her to make a formal complaint to the regulator.
2: Miss Summer listened to both of their opinions but did neither. I feel really upset about everything that has happened. I have to be fair though, as Dr. Green did warn about the root going into the sinus, so I knew it could happen. I just didn't know it could happen to me, or what it would really mean if it did. Had I known, I would have had the treatment with Dr. Simi, the surgeon in the first instance. As she said, she would have been able to take the tooth out without the need for a general anaesthetic, and as she is a specialist, it would be less likely that the root would have gone into the sinus. If it had, she could have resolved it then and there. I feel a bit ripped off in many ways, and a little misled. Instead, Miss Summer decided to write a letter to Dr Green and set out how she felt. Dear Dr Green, I am writing as I am unhappy about the fact that I had to see Dr Simmy to have surgery after you pushed the root of my tooth into my sinus. I know that you have mentioned it could happen, but I don't think you explained it very well as I did not realise that all the costs and the time off work would be involved. You also didn't give me the option of seeing Dr Simi instead of you to have the tooth taken out, as this may have avoided this whole incident entirely. I now find myself having paid twice for treatment to have my tooth removed, having paid extra costs for surgery that may not have been required if I'd seen the right person in the first instance, and having had to take significant time off work. I haven't written about this on Google because I wanted to give you a chance to put things right and I truly hope that this is what you will do.
1: Dr Green received the letter and was very unsettled by the content. After reviewing his notes, he knew he had had the requisite conversations with Miss Summer and believed he had therefore proceeded with a full and valid consent.
0: This feels very off to me. I told her this could go wrong and that she might need to see a specialist and look... I didn't mean to charge her, but I think it's fair I'm paid for my time. I've checked the x-ray again, and on reflection, I can now see that it's pretty likely that the extraction was not going to be straightforward. Always easier to see these things afterwards. I knew a root in the sinus could happen. That's why I warned her. I just didn't think it would happen to me.
1: Dr Green called to Protection and talked through what had happened the dental legal consultant invited him to send in all of the relevant documentation so they could review the file and ascertain the nature of this outcome. Was this a true adverse outcome, which is essentially any unforeseeable and unavoidable event? Or, if a critical third party were to view this incident, would they find fault with any of Dr. Green's actions? Again, always easier to see in hindsight. Before we ask the dental legal consultant, I want to ask the regulator what they look for in these matters. As the initial regulator to assess a complaint has different names across the different states and territories in Australia, in case matters we refer to the regulator as ARPRA.
4: When we assess any complaint, we do so through the filter of whether the practitioner is placing or has placed the public at harm. Broadly speaking, in order to do this, we review the practitioner's case assessment, treatment planning and diagnosis of the matter at hand to ensure appropriate care was planned and also whether the care provided was appropriate. APRA sets standards that practitioners are expected to meet, and indeed, practitioners make a declaration with their annual registration renewal stating they will do so. APRA will review the incident with these standards in mind, including the Code of Conduct, which is a roadmap of behaviours practitioners are expected to exhibit, and also the infection control guidelines. Any identified breaches of these standards may lead to conditions being placed on the practitioner's registration regardless of whether the initial complaint is borne out.
1: Is this something you were aware of, that ARPRA does not just assess the matter at hand, but considers it more broadly against the backdrop of the standards and guidance? From our experience, many practitioners find the clinical issue that resulted in the formal complaint falls away, with broader breaches of professional standards, such as record-keeping or infection control protocols becoming ARPRA's primary focus, and oftentimes resulting in the placement of conditions on the practitioner's registration. Consequently, we assess all matters through the lens of a critical third party to try to identify any potential professional standard issues that may be unrelated to the complaint at first blush, but may very much become ARPRA's focus as the matter progresses. Simon, what did your assessment uncover?
3: Well, Annalene, while we try and assist practitioners in resolving concerns at low level wherever possible, As you are aware, there are also matters we will assist the practitioner in fighting. Sometimes, however, our assessment raises concerns that will impact on our ability to defend a member. And in this specific matter, the conversation of consent was not well documented in the treatment notes. So we cannot be sure what was actually said and critically whether Ms. Summer truly understood the risks before she proceeded In her letter, Ms. Summer makes reference to not having been offered a specialist referral and essentially to having been misled regarding the difficulty of the extraction. Dr. Green's notes make this allegation hard to defend as they do not reflect any discussions regarding the difficulty. While we at Dental Protection are not the arbiters of clinical judgment and would never dictate to any practitioner regarding the treatment they should or shouldn't provide, we are still clinicians and with the benefit of an experienced eye, I am not surprised that the tooth actually broke and a root was displaced into the sinus. I gave this feedback to Dr Green, who was understandably upset at hearing this. He advised me that Dr Simi had called and asked to speak to him, and I encouraged him to return her call. So
0: this isn't what I had hoped for. I was a bit surprised by what Simon said, as I consider myself to write pretty good notes but I took it on board. I did what he said and called Dr Simi back. She was very nice about it all but at the same time she talked me through the anatomy of his tooth, the root structure and the proximity to the sinus and why the root fracture was inevitable. She also explained how a surgical approach could have avoided this altogether and emphasized albeit kindly, that she had the requisite skills to repair an OAC at the time, whereas I did not. I never thought I'd find myself in this position, and I appreciate both their time.
1: The dental legal consultant assisted Dr Green in drafting a letter of apology that included an offer of a refund for the cost charged at the practice on the day as a gesture of goodwill. Dr. Green also wanted to offer to help Ms. Summer with her hospital costs, as by now he was feeling pretty rotten about the whole affair. The dental legal consultant assisted him in including this in such a way that it could not be misconstrued as an admission of liability.
2: What a nice letter back from Dr. Green. I actually feel a bit bad for him. He was so apologetic and said that he would never have tried to take the tooth out if he thought it would end up in this situation. And I believe him. It's nice of him to offer to refund me for everything but I only want a refund of the fees I paid at his clinic as I would have had to have paid Dr Simi anyway and I was able to claim most of the other stuff on Medicare and my health fund. And look, I had heaps of leave saved up for those days off as I haven't been travelling during COVID so other than a bit of inconvenience, it really hasn't affected me much. I'm just glad he said sorry and explained his point of view. If he hadn't have done that, I would have reported him to APRA. Because I was pretty upset.
1: A good outcome, it seems. Simon, could you share with us some of the learning points from a scenario like this?
3: I think we have a lot that we can learn from this particular case. The first is that consent is actually the documentation of a discussion and an agreement between a clinician and a patient about the issues that are actually specific or material, as we say, to the patient's particular circumstances. And what we realise from this case is that if we haven't well-documented that actual discussion, it can be easy for someone to allege that it didn't occur or that it wasn't done appropriately. The second learning point is that the option of specialist referral should always be considered when we're about to perform complex, risky, or high-value procedures. Doing so helps communicate to a patient that the proposed treatment is inherently risky or complex and demonstrates The individual's commitment to offering the best possible care to a patient and we also realize from this case that patients often don't absorb all the information we try to share with them so following up using written information in cases where there's a lot of information being shared can really be helpful especially for patients who are in pain or who are easily distracted and may not be absorbing all the information we share with them I think it's also really important to realise that we need to know what to refer as well as when to refer. Because often we feel that a particular procedure is well within our skill set, but it can be prudent to actually still refer those patients where we have any concerns about what might happen should something still go wrong. So, although we may have the skills, it may still be in our best interest to refer sometimes. We realise from this case, too, that adverse outcomes can arise often when we don't really expect them to. And it may not really be because of any negligence or fault on our particular behalf, but we see that sometimes our patients may still want to try to blame us for that outcome. It's helpful if we try to see the outcome from the patient's perspective and then own the outcome and avoid trying to get defensive over what's actually happened because that only leads to conflict with our patients in most situations. And we saw today as well that charging for a procedure that hasn't been completed successfully or charging for a referral only really adds oxygen or fuel to a potential fire that's burning in a patient's mind and can actually make it worse for us and for the patient and often incite action from the patient against us. It can be really helpful too to learn how to apologise in a way that shows genuine remorse for the outcome, because that starts to build the bridge in resolving what the issues remain uh, to be with that particular patient. We know that avoiding an APRA notification is a wise move, and no one needs regulators breathing down their neck after something has gone wrong in a patient. But often if we don't resolve these conflicts with our patients quickly, the risk of having a notification made about our care of them tends to exponentially increase. So it's really important in cases like this to try to resolve it quickly, rather than uh, dragging our feet, or our heels at least, in trying to get things sorted with our patient to their satisfaction. And if you're in any doubt about how to manage a particular situation, I really would encourage you to contact protection. We're here to help And we're happy to provide advice about some approaches that you might want to take in trying to resolve issues such as this particular extraction case.
1: Thank you for setting that out for us, Simon, and thank you all for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed listening to this edition of Case Matters. The cases discussed in Case Matters are presented as an educational tool to dental protection members and to act as a risk management tool. They're based on issues arising in dental protection cases in Australia and some facts have been altered to preserve confidentiality. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.